In the woods of New York State in the 1820s, there was a man whose name was Joseph Smith. He had retreated to the peace and tranquility of the forest in order to pray. While praying, he allegedly had a vision. In this vision, God and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him his sins were forgiven and that all contemporary churches had turned aside from the gospel. He would go on to form one of the largest cults in the world, known today as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Also in the 1820s, just 90 miles away from where Joseph Smith had his vision, another man had a life-altering spiritual experience in the woods of New York. This man had come to the point in his life where he needed to finally decide if he was going to follow Jesus or not. That man described his experience in those woods with the following words. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in such a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression, like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. Who was this man? None other than the father of modern-day revivalism, Charles G. Finney. The King's Hall Podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Good old Chuck Finney. Well, welcome back to the King's Hall. I'm Brian Sauvet, and I'm here with my friends Dan Burkholder and Eric Kahn. And here in this first season, we're talking about Christendom. Not not waves of liquid love. Not waves of liquid. Oh what the heck was that? Yuggy. <laughs> Thank you. We are not talking about waves of liquid love. No, we are talking about Christendom. We're talking about building a great big cathedral of Christendom, the next Christendom, Christendom 2.0, and what that will look like. So specifically in these first episodes, we are identifying some of the strip malls and shanty towns that Christians have built on our job site, on the site where we'd like to build this great Christendom cathedral and what we need to do to tear them down and clear the way for our cathedral to go up. So we talked about the big, fast, and famous strip mall that will have to be torn down, this franchised megachurch model built on CEO, celebrity pastor personalities, built on this idea that church should be malleable to marketing that we should be luring people into the church for a worship experience in order to bait and switch them into a gospel presentation, et cetera, all of that kind of thing. So now, now sometimes one of the most helpful questions that you can ask about some model or idea that you want to assess or critique or critically understand would be the question, where did this come from? What, what are the origins of this idea? And when you ask that question of the big, fast, and famous model, one of the answers that inevitably results is the conclusion that our shallow modern megachurch movement is directly descended. You could say that the great, great grandfather of this model is an older pair of models or ideas that we might call decisionism and revivalism, decisionism and revivalism. And so in this episode, we're going to turn our sights on decisionism and revivalism, and explain why we believe that this is one of the things that will need to go. This uh, model will need to go if the church is to press forward and build Christendom 2.0. So, so first question, guys, when we say those two terms, decisionism and revivalism, 
what do we mean? And, and to be honest, uh, I was hoping that Dan might give us a brief history of revivalism, if that's okay with you, Dan. Yeah. So decisionism is fairly simple. I mean, it's making a decision for Jesus. We've all heard this term before. Make a decision for Jesus. Raise your hand if you made a decision for Jesus. Pray the sinner's prayer. Did you make the decision for Jesus? And revivalism is typically, I mean, from, from just the most charitable definition I can give is like a movement of the Holy Spirit amongst a people. Okay. Yeah. And so we saw this, this is really particular to American Christianity and it's really fascinating period in history. So we see the first echoes of this in the first great awakening with men such as George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, who are two very well-educated, they're theologically astute, seminary trained, I mean, just giants of the faith. And so they're coming out of their churches and they're preaching uh, to, to crowds of people. And they would travel for miles and miles around in order to hear these great men. We have a second great awakening on the heels of that. Really, it gets, it gets going in the 1800s. Uh, the 1820s to 1870s, just a fascinating period of history. If you're curious, a couple of books that I, I recommend, A History of the American Peoples by Paul Johnson is pretty good. I mean, granted, it's like a, I don't know. A thousand pages. A thousand pages, and it only talks about this for like 50. But it's a really good book. Uh, the other one is by Bruce Shelley, uh, Church History in Plain Language which sounds more approachable to a man of my intellect, plain language, (laughs) plain language. No. So the second great awakening is really where we get the modern idea of decisionism and revivalism. And like I said, it happened in the 1820s, 1870s during this time. I'm just going to go through the different movements because this is also known as the apocalyptic movement where we get things like the Unitarian church. I don't know if you know about Unitarian universalism, not good. I call it the what's the point church. Like if, if you're right, why should I go <laughs> to your church? Because yes. it's, I mean, we're, you, we're, we're all going to heaven, baby. But it is crazy in the, the early to mid 1800s, Unitarianism really became a dominant force in America. Yes. And really fueled most of the modern feminist movement. Early people. Oh yeah. Good uh, shelter. Caddy Stanton. Um, you know, all those people, Unitarian influence. Yeah. The feminization of America is another conversation worth having, but this period was really like with the, the pure, t- uh, the abolition, not the abolitionist movement. What's the, uh, the temperance, movement. temperance movement. Yeah. 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 The <laughs> temperance movement was big during this time. And so because of the strong emphasis from females within the, yeah, stop drinking. the churches. Yeah. Uh, no, no. In, in honor of, uh, St. Patty's day, we're having a little, uh, Green spots. Very nice. Irish whiskey. Anyway, Seventh Day at Venice, 1844, um, which is a really funny story. If you ever want to look it up uh, from William Miller and the Millerites, he was the, the, the it, there's an event. It's called the Great Disappointment. That was like <laughs> what he's known for, which is terrible. He, he predicted the coming of Christ and it didn't happen, obviously, on that day. And it's called the Great Disappointment. But it yeah. was he came back spiritually anyway. Uh, <laughs> Eventually, they became known as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You have Mormonism, like we read in the introduction from Joseph Smith and his visions and his gold plates. And we're in Utah, so we... And uh, he said no one else ever saw them. Dum, da, dum, dum, dum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we also have the Jehovah's Witness movement, uh, dispensationalism, uh, which was actually in Ireland. Uh, All of it is coming out of this time 
time period. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, period. so yeah, I'll go back wow, through the, the years. I should have done that. Nuts. You also have modern spiritualism, uh, which with the Fox sisters, crazy story where they would say like, hello, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. And then they would make echoing sounds to one another. It was a sham. Like they, they went, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're uh, grifters. They, yeah, they were, but it, it like spun up this whole, this whole spiritualistic movement. It's wow. crazy. Also the first church of Christian science. So Which all is this, neither Christian nor scientific so for the record. <laughs> all of this happened between 1825 and 1879. All of those movements. That's insane. When you yes. think about Dan, how much those movements have impacted our world today. And, you know, it, we have sort of have historical amnesia. So you think they've always existed. They haven't. Yeah. No, they haven't. They're very, very recent, man. And so it, Getting back to our decisionism and revivalism, where did that come from? Well, it was during this time period, you had a hyper-spiritualized and individualistic sort of mentality amongst the people. And this is where Charles Finney enters in to the conversation, who is known as the father of modern revivalism. And, and the reason that he was successful is because he was a good propagandist. He also had bad theology. He wasn't actually formally trained. Wait, are you saying that liquid love is bad theology? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, yes, I am. Well, no, I mean like he was a heretic. He was a full Pelagian. <laughs> like, like he denied Pelagian. He denied original sin. And so the, the predominant Calvinist idea at the time was you pray for revival. You pray that God's spirit would move. You pray that people would be saved. And he said, you guys have it all wrong. These revivals are actually just need to happen because you want them to happen. And we should use a, essentially a science equation in order to make them happen. Because as a Pelagian, he believes that there's nothing inhibiting people from Jesus other than their own right. will. So they just need to choose Jesus. And so some of the methods that he used, and I, I don't, I, I mean, I could go on for 45 minutes talking about this, but he used something called an anxious bench to where he's preaching a lot of hellfire and brimstone and making people just feel terrible. And there, if there was someone in the crowd that began to look weepy or expected some sort of movement of the spirit, because they were still, they were doing like, like barking and laughing and, and fainting in the spirit, like all this crazy supernatural kind of stuff. And so if somebody thought that this was happening, he would point them out and call them up front and the bench faced the people. So they would sit, and then everybody is praying for this person to have some sort of crazy experience, right? And so it's like, uh, I heard one, one uh, historian call it a spiritual pressure cooker yeah. to where it's like really intense, trying to get some sort of emotions. And that's really what he was a master of, was stirring the emotions of the people in order to get these crazy responses so that they would freely make decisions for Jesus. Because again, there's nothing <laughs> stopping people from being Christians right. other than their choice. And so you can see how this could become a problem going forward. As people saw these, I mean, in the Kentucky camp meetings, you would have anywhere from 10,000 to 22,000 people at these revivals. Man. And this people just wanted to come to these things. It was crazy times. And so individualistic society, very spiritual leaning at this time. And so they want wanted to just manipulate people's emotions in order to make decisions for Jesus Christ. And that is the foundations of the movement that we know today as like uh, Billy Graham, these mass evangelistic, even uh, Greg Laurie and harvest America uh, and our 
our uh, altar calls are yeah. from from that time period as well. So those are really some of the basic roots of where we get revivalism yeah. and decisionism. Yeah, I was going to say, it's really interesting. So like when I was in college, we'd go to like a Jeremy Camp concert. And you know what you're describing, it actually wasn't all that different. Like yeah. play the music real loud. People are like, you know, raising hands and sort of like crying and getting emotional because, you know, a concert is a very like a deafening, but also this emotionalistic environment. You know, they bring out a pretty girl to sing on stage and you're a college guy and you're like, you know, it's just an emotional experience, right? Well, There's a lot of stimuli. Yeah, there really is. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then honestly, like when I first came back to uh, like a Missouri Synod Lutheran church and then what we would do now with covenant renewal worship, I was kind of like, well, that's boring <laughs> um, because it's actually, we're actually trying to do something different, which actually like, it's not about this super emotionalistic experience. Um, there's not a, a decision point um, in the service. I mean, that was something we were talking about offline, but when I was at chapel at Southern Seminary, I remember Erwin Lutzer preaching and he came in and he started mimicking Billy Graham and people, you know, looked like Al Mohler was going to have like a heart attack or was something. Was he doing it as a joke? It was a joke. Oh, okay. He was, he was like kind of making fun of it. Yeah, he was legit. He was like, come on down to the front. I can feel the spirit now moving, brothers. And we were all like, I mean, I thought it was hilarious. I was dying of laughter. I didn't grow up as a Southern Baptist. I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, that the Baptist part was what was what I was missing. And now I get it. Yes. They're and like, so, all of us got saved at a Billy Graham. Exactly. Crusade. So I look around and I'm the only one laughing and everybody is like stone faced in the crowd. But again, uh, go to Southern Baptist, a lot of Southern Baptist churches in the South today. They still are doing stuff like this. Um, yeah. Billy Graham was known. Uh, one of the books, uh, Ian Murray, I think revival and revivalism they talk a lot about this too, but like he was known for like playing the music faster, letting the prayer uh, play that song another time. And like, and they would get the ushers and they would say, Hey, can you walk faster down the aisles and say, you know, cause everybody's, you know, eyes closed, heads down. But Billy would say things like, do you hear all the people coming to Jesus? Like you're missing out brother. Like it was to build angst into, again, it all comes down the to anxious box emotional manipulation. Yeah. So there's an interesting story from Charles Finney. You're talking about Erwin uh, Lutzer, you know, making fun of Billy Graham. Well, there's a story early on in his career where he goes to this church and it's a Baptist church. It's small. And he gets, he's been preaching for a little while and he's like, everybody's complimenting my preaching, but I just don't think their faith is serious enough. And I don't know what he used to determine that or not, Yeah. but there's one Sunday where he's like enough. He preaches fire and brimstone. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, uh, so here's the decision point. Cause I don't think you guys are real. If you stay seated, then you are choosing to not follow Jesus Christ. And so I want everybody to stand if you choose Jesus Christ and everybody. And he even says in his, this in his Finney. memoir, Finney. Yeah. Even in his memoir, he says that the people were confused and they all stay seated. And he said, you've made your choice. You're all going to hell is essentially oh, what he geez. said. And they all started getting mad. So they leave. He's like, I'm going to preach more tomorrow night. And so there are people that were so mad. There was one guy who brought a gun because he was going to kill him. Oh, and ah. he start, so he starts preaching. So emotions are hot. Right. And so he gets a bigger crowd the second night because they're like this guy. He's nuts. He just said, you know, everybody's going to hell. That went to this church by the third night. The whole town had shown up. And they were all whooped up. And then there, all of a sudden there was a movement of the spirit, oh, right? Yes. It's just, it's just so it's, 
it's kind of funny. It, it's about the emotional frenzy, yeah, right? It's all about the emotional frenzy. And, and yeah. a, a lot of these these issues, you can see they they're all connected. Yeah, you know, decisionism and revivalism and big, fast, and famous—they're all connected. When when you start to like decisionism, basically theologically, the error is that you're conflating the 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 new birth, which is something that is spirit wrought. It's an inward. God-given supernatural act of the Holy Spirit to make somebody born again, to take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, to do all of that. And and what decisionism does, even, even in people that theologically in their head, they're thinking, well, I know that if somebody gets saved, it's because God brought conversion to them. But what can start to happen is that people conflate the human activity, the human response with as being identical to the salvation of the sinner. You know, and this is where you even get, you know, I, I remember I, I had a, I've had people who would say, man, it, it really sounded like, you know, in the sermon today, you were saying that someone could make a profession of faith and then later <laughs> abandon the faith and prove not to be a Christian. But don't you believe once saved, always saved? Like if they prayed the prayer, if they said the thing and I was like, well, there is such thing as a false profession. Yeah. And we're not Gnostics. We're not Gnostics. Right. This isn't like a saved by secret knowledge, secret passcode kind of thing. No. Right. So you get this, you, you get these, this confusion that even if, even if the person giving the altar call is not theologically confused about what happens when someone is saved, the people at large often get confused. So, so for this episode, I did some research looking at different altar calls from big mega churches and you know what's wild? So I'm watching these altar calls. That you're saying to God, I will, I will trust Christ. The choir is going to sing while they're singing, you come right now. That's right, quickly, right up out of your seat everywhere, you come. Okay. So now you have so, heard one. Nice. So the the wild thing is I'm watching these and I know what's happening and still they're so good at manipulating your emotions to where I'm feeling like kind of anxious a little bit. Yeah. And it's because of the lighting, because the man on stage or woman, whatever one, whatever clip we ended up using has some sort oh, of yeah. gravity in, in the camber of their speech and kind of the weight that they're laying down. And then you have like that low music in the background. Yeah. That's like pushing down on you. I mean, it's, mm. it's just wild. And then they're like trying to put you on the spot. Like there's some, something I'm expecting you to do. Anyway, yeah. I just found myself like even getting anxious watching these things. Yeah. So it's just and, wild what they're trying to do. And this is the culture. And I want to, I want to get your guys thoughts on this because one, this is one we're starting to move into some of the issues with this model. Why, why do we think this needs to go? Because it, let me make it clear. We don't believe that every single aspect of, you know, somebody making an altar call, anytime an altar call has been given, anytime someone's done evangelism where they're calling somebody to, you know, come to faith in Christ. Of course, we see that in scripture. We're not throwing out the doctrine of conversion. We're not throwing out the centrality of the cross. We're not throwing out the importance of missions. What we're talking about is a methodology that fundamentally on the theological level is in error and yet has become massively popular and because of that theological error, it has led to errors of practice. 
So, so one of the things I wanted to get your, your thoughts on guys is um, the, the relationship between exactly what you're talking about and this um, existential angst that many Christians in America feel where they walk around condemned every day of their life because they know deep down that they're not continually feeling this emotional high. They're not like on the mountaintop with God. They, maybe they think back and they're like, was I really saved in that moment? Did I really have an extreme enough experience? Did I really? And this is the thing, in my opinion, decisionism and revivalism is what's led to this culture of people rededicating their lives to Christ 15 times, people getting baptized seven or eight times, you know, every youth camp, every junior hire getting saved again. And instead of helping our our, uh, our brothers and sisters and the sheep in our flock and our, you know, the, the youth in our church and our own children develop a solid assurance that's not based on their emotional response to God moment to moment, but on the factual reality of the objectivity of what Christ has done in his covenant and on the cross. So do, you, do you guys see that connection? you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, it was really big. So like high school years and into college, um, you know, my mom would take us to church and it was, uh, well, the church was called Praise Church and uh, it was a big kind of early form of the mega church. Yeah. So probably 600 to a thousand people. Yeah. Cause you're, you're pretty old. This was like the 1940s. <laughs> yeah, 50s. This, uh, this is, uh, yeah. So this is probably like mid nineties. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, again, praise and worship style music, they would have, they'd bring in some like what I would have called like Southern hellfire and brimstone preacher. Um, and then at the end of the service, again, they would have an altar call. You would go forward. They would lay your hand, their hands on you and you would be slain in the spirit and fall backwards and whatever. And I remember being like, you know, 13 and going up there and I was like, mom, that guy pushed me down. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what happened. Um, so then you go from that experience and then to college, it was, it was a lot of the same stuff that we're talking about. It just really, everything was about an emotional experience. You were not well grounded in the word. Um, one of the things that uh, I ended up reading John Piper's book, Desiring God, I really enjoyed that book for a long time. But once I became covenantal Presbyterian, uh, I really can't stand the book anymore. And the reason is because everything is about your emotional experience. So one of the most freeing things that ever happened to me, um, you know, I grew up in this, this world where John Piper, Baptist churches, you go to church. And every time you're in church, you're like, was my experience good enough? You're, you're basically like justification by emotional experience. Yeah. And he wouldn't teach that, but that's functionally what happens. And I remember going to a Presbyterian church, uh, Pastor Bill Smith. He's in Illinois now, CREC pastor. And uh, I remember at the absolution of sin, Bill said, he, he said, how you feel right now does not matter at all. What matters are the words that Jesus Christ speaks over you, that you are forgiven. Mm. And I remember thinking in that moment, I was like, I'm, I'm free. I'm free from having to base my entire religious, my assurance, my religious experience. It's all based on religious experience. And now it's, I believe the promise, you know, my, my justification is in by faith in Jesus Christ, not on how I feel on any given Sunday in a, in a, in a worship service. So I think that whole experience is, it really ends up condemning a lot of people it seems freeing, but it's not. And I think they were responding to like the old dead liturgy, which, which I get, but they just went the complete other ditch. Yeah. That actually in, in my notes from one of the things that I found kind of searching out the origins of this revivalism 
it, it, and you, you find that some of it, it isn't just 1800s. Like some of it stretches back the roots. Yeah. And, and one of the roots that was kind of surprising to me, but once I thought about it, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense is that, you know, the rise of revivalism in the American church was partly a critique of what some Protestants saw as sacramentalism, formalism, dead ritual, uh, you know, things that they were, they were rejecting in the Anglican church, the church of England, the Roman Catholic church. And they, they were saying, we don't want this dead tradition or rigid formalism. We want real authentic response to, to God. We don't want to you know, teach people to depend on, yes, yeah, say your Hail Marys or go to this painting and, and do this ritual and, and that will save you. We want people really to know God and to know Christ. But, but I think that one of the dangers, one of the, one, because what we're talking about there is there is a ditch of yeah. dead formalism. Yeah, sure. It's a real thing. And, and, and many of the errors of Roman Catholicism are errors in that ditch, right? But we can go to the other ditch and all of a sudden, we're, in, we're telling people, we're rejecting formalism, but then we actually end up rejecting form too. We say, uh, well, we don't want like these formal liturgies that everybody just has to, you know, walk through as a dead ceremony. But then what happens is you end up getting rid of all forms. And the problem is Christianity actually is about being conformed to a form. And some of those things are, are gifts, like the assurance of pardon the form every week in our church where Pastor Dan or, or I or Pastor Kevin stands up and says, you know, as a minister of the gospel of Christ, I declare that the entire forgiveness of sins is effective through the washing of Christ's blood, something to that effect. So, you, you know, all who repent in this way, you're forgiven, you're clean. You're, that form, like, thank the Lord I get to be pressed into that mold instead of the mold of individualism, my everybody making their own mold of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to respond to Christ. Yeah, And you know, what's really interesting with these altar calls and the emotionalism that you're talking about. I think about it like a cocktail. You have like this, you have a lot of truth actually, even in these, some of these churches that I would consider to be false churches, they're sharing what I would, you know, expect in a, in like a member interview. When I ask somebody, what is the gospel? They're actually sharing the gospel. Yeah. There is truth there in this cocktail, but what also is mixed in, and it's really interesting what you said, Eric, was this emotionalism versus covenant theology. Yeah. Versus your covenant standing. Yeah. So if your standing is based on your emotions or the decisions that you made, that's, you are in trouble. You are in trouble versus the covenant standing. Jesus saying like, I am covering you with my blood. You are mine. You are adopted. Your standing is before God with confidence, before the throne of, yeah. of God with confidence. Whereas like Charles Finney, he, he said this, whenever a man sins, he must for a time being cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur the penalty of the law of God. This is the kind of preaching that puts condemnation on yeah. people. I'm going to start sounding like a softy. Well, it's just theologically it's, confused. It is the well, it, it doesn't understand the distinction between justification and sanctification. Right. So when a person sins, you are under the law again. You've been put back under the law because of your choices. It's just sinless perfectionism. Yeah. In see in, in you know this uh, in coet form. It's just and, not fully grown. And, yet. and so what ends up happening a lot, and I think this has to do a lot with soteriology or or this theology of <laughs> salvation. 
uh, is that you, you end up having the Calvinists, which again, like you said, with formalism seem kind of stodgy, you know, like kind of dense and too rigid. And so trying to correct it the other way with a more semi-Pelagian Arminian sort of freedom in Christ ends up bringing you under condemnation. Yeah. And it's actually a crushing weight. Yeah, it really is. One of the things I think that we're talking about too um, is a faith that is conversionistic. So one of the best articles that I read on this was from Peter Lightheart and he was talking about movies and he was talking about why Protestants can't make good movies. And so he said, like, if you look at the great films, it's always, you know, Roman Catholics or Jews, you've got Scorsese and you've got people like this because they understand plot, narrative, climax, conflict, all that tension. And then of course, resolution. But he said that one of the problems you see in American, like, you know, Protestant Christian films is a conversionistic view of life. So like the classic example is facing the giants where it's like, everything was bad. My life is horrible. Our football team doesn't lose. I, I pray one morning, have this amazing emotional experience. I know Jesus. Now we win state titles. My, my barren wife gets pregnant like every other second. Now <laughs> every other second, she's getting <laughs> pregnant. It's just boom. Everything's great. And, and what Peter was talking about in that article was like, what we don't realize is like, read the story of Job. Job wasn't like not saved when he was going through all that. It wasn't because he needed a conversion experience. And so what we're lacking is really a definition of sanctification in the Christian life that is full of immense tension. Yeah, that, that reminds me, one of the big catalysts during this time uh, was that in order in, in the 1800s was that you needed to have a radical conversion experience in order yeah. to gain church membership. Mm. So that was really the driving force behind revivals is that you needed to provide a conversion experience to people. Well, isn't that isn't that crazy, Dan? Because to, even today, yeah, today it's, when, when I yeah. became a Christian in the Baptist Church, um, I went and they said, "Okay, tell us your conversion story." And I was like, "Well, I was baptized as an infant, and I've never not known God, and I love Him, and I love His Word, and I'll do whatever it says." And they were like, "Yeah, we're going to need to work on that." <laughs> like legit, it, it was like that's not good enough. <laughs> that you know, needs some. That needs some editing. Let's get a scriptwriter in here. That's right, because literally. And, and then the guy told me, he goes, no, he like, let me tell you a conversion story. <laughs> like, and then he tell me his and it's like, I tried Your to story commit, stinks. I, I tried to commit suicide and yeah. like the oh, bullet yeah. didn't go off. And you know, like yeah. it's gotta be said, something like that. Those, by the way, I, when I'm doing member interviews, I mean, praise God that he saves people from crack cocaine and heroin and right. Uh, you know, abortions and all that. But my favorites are like when I'm sitting down with the older couple and they're like, oh yeah, we've been Christians our whole life. And I don't remember a time where I ever questioned it. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've heard, uh, I've heard the, the, the metaphor, the illustration that for some people, their, their conversion is like the light coming on and every, and it was dark. And there are, there are men and women in our church and membership interviews that have had that conversion experience and praise the Lord for that. It's like Saul yeah. of Tarsus, yes. Go, you know, all of a sudden Jesus punches him in the face, knocks him off his horse, blinds him and says, you're a Christian now. Totally, you know, but Calvinism is a choice. true guy. Yeah, yeah Calvinism is a true though. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> right, he, he choked because he raised his hand and prayed the prayer. No, and then some people, it's like they their conversion, it happened at some point. They were born again, but it's like their conversion, as they think back on it, is more like at some point I realized that the sun was up in the sky, but I couldn't tell you the moment that it came over the horizon. And that's what, that's what we're all praying our, our sons and daughters say. It's like, no, I'm a Christian. 
I've always believed I've, this. I've, from my mother's breast, like Psalm 22, from my mother's breast, I, I was taught, I learned faith, right? Like, that's what we want, yeah. right? And, and conver- basically, conversionism, decisionism, revivalism, it pedals in... It peddles in an uncertainty about your standing before God because it anchors your standing before God mm. on your work and your response emotionally in that moment or in that. So you hear, you see people all the time or you hear them saying like, it's been a dry season. Yeah. And that's true. Sometimes it is a hard, like you have a kid, you're, you know, I, I hear that the, the last trimester of pregnancy can be difficult on a family. It's like, you know, people are tired and emotions can be high and yeah. Oh, I wasn't experiencing the rapturous delight of my union with Christ moment to moment, but we should be giving people and and the next Christendom will require us to give people a thick understanding of their union with Christ and the covenantal work of Christ and salvation and in building his church so that people, when they have that rough season, year, months, whatever, bad, quiet time, bad, quiet time (laughs) that they don't think they need to get saved again. Yes. They don't need, they're not like, oh, I need another revival. I need to rededicate my life to Christ, get baptized for the fourth time. I'm not sure if I've been baptized enough. I don't know if it would have really counted. Yeah, so it might not have counted. I, I want to ask you guys a question that comes to mind as, as we're talking about all this stuff. Um, you know, compare it to Big, Fast, and Famous. Compare it to life in the church today. I think a lot of the things, people will hear this and they'll go, okay, yeah, I can actually see a lot of those elements still very present in the church today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess unpack for me, what the long term, like if you look at like 2000 to like 1970, some of the revivalism and the stuff that's been left over, what's kind of been some of the bad fruit that you've seen culturally from that? Yeah, like what today is an effect yeah. that has is fruit on the end of the branch of 200 years of yes. revivalism, yeah. right? 200 years of decisionism, 200 years of revivalism. What fruit has that borne? And man, Eric, one of the things that comes to mind when you say that is a particular way of thinking about missions Mm. in a very glamorous um, Hollywood, big effects, huge things happening, short-term missions that change my life. I go to Haiti, bunch of little kids get saved. We, you know, we, we come in, we save the village, we build their church, we paint it for the 37th time. I mean, for the very first time, you know, and uh, just, just glorious things happen. And at the same time at home, the Christians at home, the church that sent those 17 year olds or college students or whatever on this mission are that church is not committed at all to Christian education. They're just sending their kids to public school. They're, they're not, you know, they're, they're basically instead of thinking about the mission of God and the mission of God, as it relates to their life as a long slow discipleship of somebody who is fundamentally a citizen of the kingdom of God. They're thinking about it in terms of, I want to be converted and then I'll go to heaven. And so they end up not being too concerned about all of this, you know, like actually building Christian culture in their house, but they think grandiose thoughts about converting people in the third world. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day, another pastor, and we were talking about how, you know, again, John Piper, he was a very influential force, but like I read Don't Waste Your Life and it was, it was all about you know, that and plus like his book on missions. I remember him saying things like go send or disobey, 
basically making it seem like the only reason that you even make money as a businessman is to give to missions. Right. Like, and then you would look at the same situations. And again, we're losing our children at pretty high rates within the church. We're not even ministering yeah. to our, our family, which is the m- most important biblical thing we could be doing. Yeah. To me, it's like fundamentally, instead of viewing the church as a matter of di- the, the mission of God, the missio Dei, as a matter of discipling the nations, like Christ gave us, that was his task. Go make disciples of the nations. Every other part of that verse is modifying grammatically that instruction. Go disciple the nations, and then it explains how you do that. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, for lo, I'm with you. I think decisionism and conversionism, 200 years of this ideology, has taught us to see the mission of God as converting sinners, not converting and discipling sinners. Right. So, so the Bible is way easier. It's way. Yeah. Cause if it's just, if I just getting them to make a decision. Yeah. To assent to a proposition. There's tons of stuff yeah. I can do, but think about how much harder it is when you say, no, we're actually now we've just started. We've just started once they've, they're converted. Now we're going to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. Yeah. And I know we'll probably talk about what this looks like positively. Yeah. Next, next, next episode. week. Yeah. But just to give you a little taste so the Missio Dei applied essentially at home and with missions is colonization. That's right. You're colonizing where Which you go. Which takes a long time. Yeah. So I yeah. even had a, a missionary that I had spoken to who was in Eastern Europe. And I asked him the question, like, what is your plans for the next 50 years? And he kind of laughed and he's like, I'll see if I'm going to stick around for the next six, eight months. Yeah, he, That's a good question. And I nonsense said, to him. Yeah. And I was like, well, do you want your kids to, to be like citizens there? Do you want them to know the language? Are you going to plant your flag there and say, no, this is, this is where we plant our flag. This is our identity. This is where we are. We are going to disciple this, this nation, country. Yeah. this country, yeah. you know, and colonize it. Same way with, with. Christian education. You're colonizing your own children. You're saying, this is how we're going to think. This is how we're going to eat. This is how we're going to work. This is how we're going to worship. Every part of life becomes very important when you're trying to accomplish, like you said, the missio Dei, the mission of God, teaching uh, your children and the peoples to obey all that Christ commanded. It's colonization. And, And what that means, another way we could put this is that the culture of decisionism and revivalism will inevitably be a thin culture. It'll be very frothy and fizzy and have a lot of flashing lights attached to it. And it will be very, but it will be like like exciting in the way that a sugar rush is exciting, but not the way that like a good steak is nourishing. It's a thin culture rather than a thick culture because a thick culture and again, we're going to get very practical in the next episode on this. This is more, th- we're, we're building some theoretical models of what we don't want and what we do want next, next week. We'll get more practical, but think, you know, decisionism because it makes the main thing, that moment of conversion, it just puts the emphasis, the hook is there. Like we need to get people or because the other side of conversion of revivalism isn't just converting sinners. It was also about going to villages where there were Christians and stirring them up to have a fresh experience of the spirit. But either way, whether it's stirring up the Christian or converting the lost, it's all about that moment. Mm. It's all about the fizz in that moment. Shake up a bottle of Mountain Dew and open the cap. Exciting things will happen, but not for very long. Right. And what we're talking about with the kingdom of God, the Missio Dei is 
planting crops, colonizing. It's, it's, you know, going into an, whether you're talking about your own family or the foreign nation, your own nation or the foreign nation, you're saying these people, this is what they think about food. This is what they think about clothing. This is what they think about art. This is what they think about music, literature, truth, goodness, and beauty. Where is that not connected properly to the Lordship of Christ? And how can we make their art, music, beauty, food, dancing, Mm. clothing, education, bend the knee to Christ. And what that's going to produce inevitably is a thick culture. Yeah. Which is what we're after. One of the questions that I have, uh, as you were describing that we're, we're, we're talking about this subject. If you don't believe in kind of this revivalistic decisionism, it's going to change your preaching. Right. Um, One of the things, and I, I think, you know, I'm not knocking anybody, but I think that the culture that we've grown up is so thoroughly revivalistic and baptistic that even the best of us are prone to this. So recently, uh, it was today, actually, this morning, I was watching Shepherd's conferences going on. Mm-hmm. People are sharing clips of Vodibachum, and it looks like he's crying and preaching the gospel and just super passionate. I've only seen it with the sound off, you know, scrolling. Okay. So I know exactly what you mean, but I don't so, know what he said. Like super passionate, and all the responses are like, this was the most electric cut through my soul moment. And, and I think about my time going to together for the gospel and conferences and, yeah. and then you would go back and, and your pastor's kind of like your dad, where he's just like, here's some things that we need to learn. We need to put these into practice. And, and, and I hate to put it this way, but it's just straight boring. And he's talking about my sermons guys. It's fine. No, I am it, not. It, it, <laughs> it's fine. Eric. No, it's fine. It's fine. But, but you understand what I know I'm you saying? Mean, though, that's what I want. That's what I want to preach. Like, but you know, you know what I yeah. mean? Like where, where, and, I, and, and again, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, like it was almost this expectation that you're putting on a show. Yeah. We're making brilliant orators. Yeah. That and, move people. And, and I love Vody and I love everybody, you know, most of, I don't know all of them, but most of the speakers, there, great, great preachers of the gospel. Yeah. But again, what if the expectation for preaching was just solid food? It wasn't like. You know, I remember preaching. I preached for three years um, at a small church. I think probably on like three occasions, did I ever reach that level of just being so passionate about what I was yeah. preaching that that it was like really, really deeply emotionally stirring for me? Yeah. Um, most of the time it's like, here's what it says. Here's what we need to do. I love the word. I love God. Yeah. But my my perspective is this is fundamentally not a performance. Yeah, because we're we're not doing two things that decisionism and revivalism think are the main two things. Yeah. On the one hand, the preaching of the, of the scriptures to the to the people of God in the gathered worship is mainly not about converting them. And in fact, if I preach mainly as if I'm trying to convert them, the message they're going to unconsciously absorb is that I don't think they're converted. Yes. You're not Christians. You guys need to get saved. What we, we had False. this chapel. I remember Paige Patterson preached and he said, I'm going to preach the gospel this morning. And, I, and he said, and if you're asking me why, it's because I don't think there's Christians here. Wow. Yeah. And we were like, wow. It, I mean, it, I'm sure there were genuinely right, some unsaved right. people, but. In, in any given gathered worship service. So, I mean, on the one hand, we're saying, hey, you're not converted. I need to convert you. And then the second thing that we tend to preach like we're trying, like we're trying to hit as a target with our sermons. that is not fundamentally the main emphasis of biblical preaching is that I'm trying to, you know, mainly move your uh, emotions in order to move your will. Yes. Right. Like in that order where I'm trying to stir you up in order to soften up your will 
which is really obstinate. Your will's the problem, guys. So that you'll then go be manipulated into doing what I want because your emotions will then drag you there. Here's the problem with that. Decisions made based on your emotions, even if those emotions were good, are not durable. Those no, are not durable things. You might go on a winning streak for a minute right. if you make decisions with your emotions, yeah. but inevitably you will crash and burn. And here's what I'm trying to do instead. Just, you know, I'm preaching week in and week out at, at the church here in Ogden. And the main thing I'm trying to do, like you said, Eric, is, is tell the people of God, these are Christians. This is what your Lord says to you. This is what he says to you. You're Christians. This is not far from you. This is not far from you. You have the spirit of God. You have new hearts. You can do this. And so, hey, let's go do this together. Let's go walk in this. And I'm trying to actually move their will first. I'm trying to say, God says to you, X, whether you didn't know that because you needed better instruction or you didn't know how to obey the text or you just needed a reminder and you're 50 years into this thing and, and you're already doing this, but you know the scriptures repeat themselves. I'm basically trying to move your will first. And, and, and like you said, sometimes I can remember moments where I've been brought to tears while preaching in, in a way that wasn't effeminate. I think I was, you know, I remember a time thinking about the, the wickedness of the world and particularly the application that came to mind in the moment was like the way that in our world, if someone finds out that their unborn child is, has Down syndrome, that their first response is just to kill the baby. Mm. And I, I was just like, there was a sermon, I was wrecked. And that just brought me to, to tears in the middle of the sermon. And, but that was once, I've been preaching for seven plus years now, or you know, however long it's been. And those are, those are the, we're not opposed to emotions. We're not anti-emotions. God gave us emotions, but in the proper order. Yeah, we're not trying to manufacture that on a weekly exactly. basis. That's not success. And we're not making that the basis of, I mean, here's the other thing that I've realized a lot of times is um, hearing a lot of Presbyterian reform guys preach where it's like, Doug Wilson is probably maybe one of the best examples of this, where it is amazing content and he's reading a manuscript and it's not <laughs> yeah. like a, a revivalistic sermon. No, he just wrote a blog post and right. he's reading it. And he's it. reading it. Well, you know, with preaching, one way, this is like, this is like crayon sort of thinking by me. You're welcome. But, but I've heard people say like, uh, you know, it's not a pastor's job to feed the people. You know, it's not a pastor's job to feed the sheep. I'm like, no, no. They're feeding the sheep something no matter what. Yeah. Right. And in this revivalistic decision, Jesus said, feed my, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feed my lambs. Pretty sure. It's literally a verse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in these, when you're, when you are, like you said, pandering to people or you're just assuming that none of them are Christians. And so you just get that surface level, but it's really exciting. It's almost like those restaurants that use like fancy foams and like pop rock sprinkles. Oh yeah. Like the like, modern yeah, like the modernistic Cue chemical. The, why are you? Why are you? Yeah. I, Mister, should I call you Mister? <laughs> why are you gay? That's what I say versus, to the chef when it comes out with that. Versus a faithful pastor like uh, my pastor, Brian Sauvey, when he preaches, he's like, you know what people need to eat? They need to eat their green beans. Yeah, they do. So we're going to sit down and we're all going to eat green beans together because I know a That's lot right. of you need to eat your green beans. That's right. And green beans, they're not exciting, but they have vitamins and minerals that are, vi I mean, you, you carry this cook, too far. Cook them but, in yeah. butter. I mean, but essentially, you know, have a good outline. But <laughs> It's interesting. So you take the preaching and that impacts the people and then downstream from that. So I want to give one example. Yeah. Um, when I, this is like college, just out of college. So young families, everybody, you know, people who are married, starting a family. I remember a lot of the young ladies would say this. 
you know, right now, like in our culture, this is hard to fathom, right? Presbyterian covenantal culture. We're looking at it. We're saying like motherhood is glorious, but you took these ladies who were, you know, like street preaching, evangelizing, single ministry, all that in, on college. And it was exciting. Mm-hmm. And we're going on mission trips. And I remember one lady said she, she was on her second child and she said, yeah, motherhood is such a disappointment to me because I feel like my Christian life is over. Oh, and I remember being like as sad as I've ever been because yeah. I said, you are totally missing the point. But what was the reality? Her entire existence, her entire Christian life was based on what kind of experience am I having emotionally? Even every week, it's like, like again, big, fast and famous megachurch is the great, great grandchild of revivalism. Yes. Because it basically says... How can I give you the best worship experience? I mean, that's even the term that they use Yeah, week to week. Well, and you have people that are seeking an experience, a personal yeah. experience. And we're, and we're encouraged to that. Yeah. 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 Like so, have a personal, it's not a religion. It's a personal relationship no, with Jesus. Personal re- and, and what I was getting to with the food part, uh, bringing it full circle was the exciting experience and the revivalistic approach is individualistic because it's all yeah. about your choice yeah. and manipulating your will. Whereas in faithful preaching where you're saying, eat your green beans, you're all eating your green beans together. It's uniting the body because yeah. yeast goes through, you know, sin goes through the body like yeast. And so you're stamping out those sins within yeah. the body to unite the people together by feeding them the same spiritual food and then you say, okay, and let's go to the table together yeah, and be eat. knit together and be made by the same stuff, yeah, same and, which bread. is the body and, and the blood of Christ. Yeah. And so it's very uh, united. It's covenantal. Yeah, yeah it's covenantal. And it, this, this remind you know, one thing that I think you start to realize when you look at revivalism, decisionism, big, fast, and famous is that a lot of it fundamentally is what can boil down to the worship of adolescence. The worship of youth and the experiences. Think about the experiences of youth. They're like an obsession with appearance, emotional instability. They're still learning self-mastery when you're 17 to 25. Preoccupation with romantic love, pushing boundaries, testing the wisdom of your elders, obsession with self-discovery. Oh, man. Immaturity, self-exploration with personal transformation. Your emotions are marked by higher highs and lower lows than when you're 30, 40, 50. And so there, there's a book actually about this. It's called The Juvenile, Juvenilization of American Christianity by an author named Thomas Burgler. And he, he pointed out that a lot of these errors in the modern church stem from, he pointed to the, the movements from the 1930s and 1940s. And, and I think that he would probably agree that those stem back to what we're talking about through revivalism, but these juvenile traits in the church, he he describes the juvenilization of the church as quote, the process by which the religious beliefs, practices and developmental characteristics of adolescence become accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. Interesting. So I think he's correct in that assessment that a lot of what marks the culture of revivalism are the characteristics of youthful immaturity uh, over things like stable seasoned maturity where we're all aiming for mature manhood and womanhood. And instead the whole church starts to get marked by this, like, you know, cause w- what is a, a highly emotional experience, but a junior high girl. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> the day in life of the junior high girl. You got, what do you guys think about that? Do you, do you well, think he's you know onto something there? You know, what's really interesting. I, I hadn't really considered that before because I had, I had just always pointed to the, to the feminization of the church. Yeah. But you're right. Having a more juvenile, 
atmosphere. And I can't remember who it was. It told me the, was it the grandpa rule? Do you, that, do you remember that's that That's my rule. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that was you. The yeah. grandpa rule. Yeah. What is the grandpa rule? The grandpa rule is a rule about, it could be applied to sermons too, or the names of whatever. But the grandpa rule is specifically a rule that I, I, I came up with a, as a worship leader in choosing which songs to sing. And the rule was, if I can't picture my grandpa singing it really <laughs> zealously, I will not do that song. So can I picture my grand, my grandpa's name was Don. He, Don he, had gravitas. Yeah. He smoked a couple packs a day, died in his seventies, lung cancer. And uh, he was a trucker. Hey, that was, I mean, that's pretty good. I, he had a good, good run. Smoking if I thought it. He made you know, it past 70? the average age of a male in the, in America. So, I mean, yeah, he was, you know, classic, like 20 acres in Montana, piles of rusty cars everywhere that he one day intended to do a oh, bunch man. of stuff with it's living my best, life. just a taciturn old guy. And, uh, I, I can picture grandpa Don singing like, um, what, what's the song like amazing grace. Or- I, I know that my redeemer lives glory. Hallelujah. But I cannot picture my grandpa singing. Get, the, you get ready. me out upon the waters. But feet may fail. In ocean. You are <laughs> Or like, uh, what, what's the one about reckless? It's like reckless oh, love. Oh, the never end. They always mispronounce the words like hipsters. Overwhelming, reckless love of God. Uh, should I call you Mr. Why are you gay? <laughs> you knew that. Yeah, I was just waiting. <laughs> but it's not just it's the music. Rule. It's not just <laughs> it's the everything. music. It's yeah. everything. Can I picture my it? grandpa walking in and, and taking serious spiritual and life advice from a faux hawked skinny lady pants wearing guy who looks like he's trying to be 17 when he's like 42. My grandfather. Oh, I've never thought about this. I've never tried to picture this. My grandpa would walk in. He would get the look of Clint Eastwood in that one gif where he's just like, by the way, that's like Dan's permanent resting face, (laughs) resting Clint Eastwood face, Clint Eastwood, Grand Torino on the porch growling. (laughs) Yes. And my grandpa would, would leave. Like he would, he would leave my grandpa didn't call things gay, but he, he, he would just leave. whatever the greatest generation version of calling things gay is he would have done. But it's interesting because of, there's another book. I read this a while ago. It's called the death of the grown up. Uh, I believe the author is Diana West, um, but really same premise, right? Yep. Since, um, you know, and they talk about things like, you know, there was a time when like to, to go to a concert was like Frank Sinatra. Yeah. It was a very adult experience. And then, you know, later it, it's going to see, I don't know, Dan, have you ever seen anybody like right now you'd cringe at that you went to see in concert? Uh, oh. I didn't really go to concerts. I don't did really you go to Backstreet Boys or something. I, <laughs> <laughs> he did. Dan, Dan has a, a Backstreet Boys tattoo. I've seen a Supertones concert. Yeah. I saw the Newsboys. I would cringe now. Yeah. That was a setup. Um, my first my first concert was Phillips, Craig and Dean Ugh, acapella okay. group. All right. So yeah, Dan yeah. has a lower back tattoo of backstreet boys. Oh no. I yeah. can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I thought you'd deny it. <laughs> He's for got sure. the tramp stamp. <laughs> He's got, it's the yeah. frosty tips of the one dude. It's yeah. what uh, isn't that guy's name, Brian? Uh, never mind. I don't know. Let's I, move on. Yeah, Let's move on. Know. I'm just Maybe revealing that back. I know too much about that. back. All right. Oh okay. my. We can cut all this out. <laughs> you are we can. Oh, dang it. And <laughs> it's true. It's, we, we deserve that. Yeah. Yes. We deserve In that. But I do want to say this. I was having this conversation a couple of years ago with one of my buddies, you know, and you guys all understand this. As you get older and you have kids and you have property, you know, w- what we do together as a family 
is like, you know, we have dinner together. We smoke a brisket with, you know, play on the back 40 feet. Um, that's right. The back 40 feet. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what sad. we can afford in uh, today's in world Oregon. so far. Uh, but, but it's interesting. Um, there was this whole culture when I was in seminary and CJ Mahaney was big about this every week, man, you need to be dating your wife. You need to go, oh, yeah. you need to go back to the time period in your, in your relationship when you were dating. And, and my friend, Jonathan, he told me this, he goes, I don't want to go back to that time period. Heck I was, no. I was an emotional wreck. I was like, does she like me? Does she not? Constantly so, sexually frustrated. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yes. Always. And now, so, okay. Married 20 years in almost. Yeah. I'm at the point now where I'm like, I would never in a million years want to go back to when I was dating my Absolutely wife. Absolutely not. Or even just like, think about all the, the good, this is thick culture, thin culture thing. Thin culture is like the fizz of romance. Thick culture is like, no, you, you don't realize my wife has 11 years of marriage under her belt. Now her cooking is a hundred times better than it was the first week of her. <laughs> yeah. She was vegan for a minute. Like oh, she's repented. Man. She cooks me some glories now. And this is just one little snapshot of maturity. Again, the fetishization of youth, of emotions. Immaturity. Immature. An- another aspect of that, by the way, that I thought was very insightful in, and I think it was in that book by Burglar about the juvenilization of the church. He talks about, um, the, the connection between this style of church culture and activism. Interesting. So, so what happens in the church is that from the, from the 19th century into the 20th century, you have huge movements that begin to shift towards the gospel of social issues. So the gospel of temperance, the gospel in temperance, the gospel in pacifism, the gospel in fill in the blank. Mm. And, and what it is, is it's youth culture again young people who are questioning the youth that's been hand or questioning the wisdom that's been handed down to them, the traditions of the ages. Whereas in the past, like in the classical, in the, in the classical world, children were not thought of very highly. Actually, they were in another ditch. Like they thought children weren't really persons yet. And, and so they didn't fetishize youth the same way we do. Neither seen nor heard. Not, yeah. Yeah. Like Spartacans, you know, they're Spartans, not Spartans. Spartacans. No, Spartacus. Wow. Spartacus. Like, you're Spartacus. This is the Doc Holiday. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. You may go. I forgot you were there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like, uh, when they turn seven, send them to be tortured for several years to become men and probably better than what we do. But you know, they, they didn't care about children at all. They didn't respect or revere children. We've gone the other way where we basically want, we want to make children into our political heroes and we want to make, you know, we fetishize youth and it's led to the church being married to activism where instead of viewing the Missio Dei again as the long-term colonization of the world, discipling the nations so that there is genuine transformation. We're not talking about any kind of like just between your ears, Christianity where we want to respond to emotionalism with just mere intellectualism. No, no, we're talking about transformation, real evangelism, real missions, right? Real change over the years, plotting change, taking ground slowly and keeping it. And what they want, what revivalism wants is a a culture of Christian activism. Hmm. It's like a grass fire. Yeah. It's a grass fire. It's let's go, let's go BLM on this town. Let's go. Uh, we, and, and it's, I even, you know, one of my, my wife's best friends growing up, she ended up marrying a guy. I, I played, um, music for their wedding, good friends. And then he went super liberal, fully liberal. I actually watched part of a sermon that he preached at his gay affirming, you know, trans denominational church, which I think is what they call it. And, um, 
It opened with a clip Ugh. of the Blues Clues guy, you know, the no, no, around, no, no. you know, where he's like, and look at it, look at all you've accomplished. You <laughs> exactly. And except and they actually are. They literally Legit. are. Yeah. <laughs> and it went through all of the, the whole sermon. I couldn't find a Bible verse, um, but his, his title at the church is something like the pastor of justice. No. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm not making this up. Like, I mean, I, that's, that's kind of a cool title, but not how they apply it. Like if it was biblical justice, yeah. absolutely. If you yeah. were like the guy in the actually, church, you're the hammer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here's the other thing though. Let's actually just, that's probably the civil magistrates. <laughs> He's probably the minister. Well, of justice. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm just playing. But, I know. But think about, think about this. Like Ligon Duncan, a couple years ago, he comes out and he's like, why do we need to support, you know, a lot of the social movements going on today? And, and so this is a guy at the, like one of the flagship PCA, supposedly reformed covenantal yeah. churches, venerable older guy, yes. a lot of years in the faith kind of guy that you'd want to look up to and say, you know, help us yeah. as the next generation walk in and, faith. And Lig Duncan, it kind of ties together everything we've been talking about, but he says now, listen, and I'm, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, but he said, now, listen, he said, if we don't take up these social issues, the BLM, the racial reconciliation, we're going to lose our kids because they care about these issues. Ugh. Instead of discipling them to understand justice yeah. and goodness and truth and beauty yeah. and, and the mission of God. Yeah. So, yeah. and then, and then the whole thing is to like come out, you know, in his case and apologize. But, but I think um, there's a really fantastic book. Um, I've reviewed it on the Hardman podcast. I would encourage people to check it out, but it's by John Harris. And it's uh, the social gospel and yeah, something, the social, or other, oh, something or other. We can, we can provide links. Yeah, John Harris. Uh, but a phenomenal book. And what he says is he shows in the book, he gives examples of how like J.D. Greer and other people within evangelicalism, they have actually changed the gospel so that they'll say, if you're not preaching the social gospel, it's not the full gospel. And, and what they're doing is they're conflating revivalistic activism mm-hmm. with biblical transformationalism. Like biblical and those justice, are not the same. Yeah, not things. the same. So, I have one last question, line of reasoning, I want to go down to end the episode, and, and and so this is kind of a last call before that. Do you guys have anything you want to you 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 think that we need to talk about before we start landing the plane here? Because we're over sixty minutes. I do. Okay, Pete Monster. Oh, Pete Monster. Oh yeah. What are we drinking? Compass Box Pete Monster. It's a it's a uh, not a single malt. It's a blended Scotch. It was. Very expensive, and I would not recommend it. But it actually tastes pretty good. It is good. good. It probably tastes price. better if you didn't pay for it. Right. But I did pay for okay, it. I didn't pay for it, and I like it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Was so that alternate. seriously what you were Yeah, that was ask? it. So, oh, okay. The, uh, I want to hear what your question is. Sure. And, and we'll, we'll finish so, up. So my question to frame it is that the last, you know, this is sort of bridging us into next week too. Because people are probably like, okay, this is nice and theoretical, but I'm a dad or I'm a, what do we you know, do? I'm a guy. And I would say one thing we need to do um, is to recognize the fruit of revivalistic discipleship in our own practical lives. Mm. Eric, I thought what you said was really insightful that most of us probably underestimate how much we've been discipled by this. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about like one of the things that we would be remiss to mention before moving on in an episode like this is, is is that revivalistic tendencies aren't just a matter of how you do church, but, but how you function as a dad. Mm. If you're a revivalistic dad, it means you treat your children like they're continual uh, uh, audience members at a revival service. Well, yeah, I was going to say even, even like the uh, Paul trip, Ted trip. Um, and then later, Elise Fitzpatrick with give them grace. She's, you know, the law gospel distinction is huge. She's basically like an old school Lutheran. 
Yeah. But um, it's, it's interesting because it basically it's parenting for conversion, right? You're, you're parenting for this. So it's like, you know, you got to spank your kid cause he, he hit his, his brother, whatever. And they're like, basically you have to have this elaborate conversation every time, every time. to bring them to a point where they're like, I have a sinner. I repent. I know. I, I like two nights ago, I, I was spanking one of my kids, like metaphorically CDC or whatever you are. I can't remember <laughs> she's CPS metaphorically spanking them. <laughs> And uh, with love, I was giving them a popsicle. You know, that was what I was doing. That was, that's how I discipline my children. I just give them ice cream and candy whenever they do something wrong. Okay, so you had the spoon. So I had the spoon. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just went, you know, hey, you disrespected mom right there. This is how you did it. Yeah, I did that. Okay, well, I'm disciplining you because I love you. And um, we need to go say sorry to mom and, and get back in fellowship. That's it. That was it. That was the whole conversation. I didn't say your wicked heart led you to this disrespect. It was just the outflow of your wicked heart. And in the gospel of John chapter three, you know, I didn't give yeah. him like an altar. Can call. you imagine though, like as an adult, like if say you're in the workplace with a Christian brother, you guys work together, but say Dan comes to you and is like, you know, you say to Dan, you know, I'm really sorry, Dan, please forgive me. And Dan's like, no, let's go through this, Brian. <laughs> Why did you do this? Because of your wicked, envious heart. Do you feel the weight of what you have done. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good. It's a positional understanding of where your kids are, just like we talked about yeah. in the church, is that when you approach your kids, this is one thing that I've, uh, my kids are all little. I have four boys, four and under now, and I am very sleep deprived. <laughs> but at night when I do bedtime, my kids are having a hard time with the catechism, you know, because yeah. the words are kind of big and they're like, they're young. I asked them the question and they're like, broccoli, broccoli, broccoli. And I'm like, you know what? This, <laughs> yeah. we're just, we'll try again tomorrow. Maybe you'll, yeah. you think that's funny anyway, but I'll ask the boys, are we Christians? And they'll say, yes, that's right. Yes. We're Christians. Like who do we worship? We worship the Lord. Yeah. And so I approach them because they're Christians. They are, they are Christians and they need to repent Yeah. and they need to do the ordinary Be discipled. things. Be discipled. They are yeah. rough. They are rough, yeah. but I would even say your marriage. So yeah, like one marriage. of the things that, man, I've had to actually repent to my wife of this, but like early in marriage, because of this Baptist culture, like if, if, if one of us would, you know, go through a rough stretch, you know, I'd say to my wife, I'm just not sure you're saved. What? Oh, yes. Eric. It's Dude. horrible. I'm I've so sorry, Jerry, that you I have had to go through this. I have literally repented of this to her. Like, I'm so sorry, but I'm telling you that was the culture that we yeah. were reared in. Oof. Yeah. I, now I wouldn't even think to say that. Yeah, just, just think you guys, seriously think about how deeply revivalism has affected how we think about yeah. Christian faithfulness in every area of our life. It is like, uh, maybe you saw the title of this and you were like, Oh, okay. Decisionism revival. I've heard about that before, but I think so often we leave it there at the church level of like preaching and the methodology of the church and how we preach to sinners and missions but th what we're talking about here is a fundamental instinct towards emotional manipulation as the main tool of change. Yes. That's sub-Christian. That's not Christian. Could and, be interpersonal relationships. Yes. And as a view of the covenantal relationship of the Christian to Christ as in or out based on their emotional experience from moment to moment. But still at the same time, somehow we want to say, but they prayed the prayer. So they have an existential angst at all time and a false security at the same time. It's like the worst possible combination. It's horrible. And the terrifying part is they might not actually be a Christian. They might not. This does not produce Christians no, consistently. No, it, it doesn't. This, this, this methodology tends to produce um, really hardened, 
apostates mm. who just, they flee the church because they realize they can't measure up to what is being asked of them. Cause it's not like, this is the thing guys. I know that a lot of us have been conditioned by the way that, that gospel centrality has taught us to view the law and the gospel to say like the law for Christians, literally impossible. I'm sorry, guys. There's really only one application of the law and that's Christ did it. That's right. It's, hey, don't, don't, the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. Jesus was never sinfully angry. That righteous record was credited to you. Therefore, trust in Christ. And never moving on into, and actually though, stop being sinfully angry. It's like we've been taught this gospel centered in a thin gospel way, not a thick gospel way. Um, Law gospel mistake that teaches us to actually, instead of saying what the scriptures say about the law, which is to the people of God, the scriptures say things like this. These things are not far from you. You can't do them. God is like, actually even think about God's um, in, in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about Moses, giving them the divorce clause. And, and he says he did it because of their hardness of heart. Like that's how patient and kind God is that he even knew this is, he knew that they were sinners. And so he gave them a way to minimize human suffering with this divorce clause there in the old Testament. It's like for the Christian, when we're, when we're in discipling relationships, like a father to a son or, you know, husband to his wife, pastor to his flock, we ought to be telling one another, exhorting one another daily, brother, sister, son, daughter, you can do it. The Lord is with you. Mm. You do not have to be a slave to sinful anger, lust, pornography today. And not in a triumphalistic emotionalism, not in like a, if I if, declare yeah, over you, not yeah. in an, if no. you sin, it doesn't, it means you're not a Christian way, but in a way that when we sin, we're teaching our people how to respond to it. They say, Oh, I go to the cross for mercy and help in my time of need, the throne of grace. And, I, and then I, I stand back up and I keep pursuing Christ and I keep walking in faithfulness to the boring, mundane, normal duties that are actually glorious that God has given me. And revivalism, when you fall, it wants you to say, do this deep emotional introspection and maybe get saved again and maybe get baptized again and, you know, maybe rededicate or walk an aisle. It's just, we need to not underestimate the the degree to which this is um, affected us. So I hope that you guys have come to hate through both of these topics, big, fast and famous and decision decisionism and revivalism. They're related I hope you've come to to hate and reject emotionally manipulative, shallow, strip mall, decisionistic revivalism and mega churchianity. I hope you hate it with perfect hatred. Next episode, we're going to talk about how we can do that, how we can hate it with perfect hatred practically and walk in instead of that. What ought we to walk in as Christians? What are we building in this? What are the next bricks in the cathedral of Christendom now that we've cleared that strip mall out of the way? Um, so in the meantime, fast and alente, make haste slowly, and we will see you in the next episode of the King's Hall. <laughs>